Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Doves Magazine. Today on the show is a first time guest, filmmaker, journalist, and author Greg Klein. We're going to talk about his new book, his old book, and a bunch of other stuff in between. His new book is called The Paper Tigers. It's a fictional account of the famous game in 1912 that saw the Detroit Tigers have to field a team of locals to play against the Philadelphia Athletics when Ty Cobb was suspended for going into the stands and beating up a fan. We're going to talk about where the idea came from, uh, merging real life and historical fiction, the myths about Ty Cobb, and a bunch of other things related to the book. We're also going to talk about his old book, which was called The King of New Orleans, which was about the junkyard dog and his time in Mid-South wrestling. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Mid-South, the junkyard dog's history, uh, Bill Watts' booking philosophy, and a whole bunch of other things. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. to the Winter Palace. I've known our guest online for a good while, but haven't had the chance to have him on the show until now to talk about his new book, his old book, probably a lot more than that. I'm very happy to welcome to the show author and journalist Greg Klein. How's it going, Greg? Good, Mark. Thank you for having me. As you said, we've been we've been waiting for this for a long time, so I'm, I'm happy to finally be here speaking with you. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there are you know, there's plenty of people I know, and it's like, um, you know, I've worked a lot in comics, and it's like, there are people that I've wanted to have on the pod, but it's like, I sort of don't want to necessarily pester them if they don't have, like, something new to pitch, because otherwise it's just like, hey, do you want to talk about this book that I really liked 15 years ago that may still be in trade paperback, but, you know, do you... Re- is that something people are really going to want to hear about versus something new? I mean, it's true for authors too, I guess. So, yeah, because I think um, I think the JYD book had been out for a while. Yeah, it's ten uh, years now, if you can believe that. Yeah, so it's kind of like, yeah, I know, I know you, and it's like I'm sure we could have found something to talk about, but it's like you always sort of don't want to don't want to bother people. I mean, this is sort of a low budget one man operation. It's not like, you know, going on, you know, Simmons's podcast or something like that. That's, you know, going to generate a lot of interest. So yeah, I, I generally try to only hit up people I know when there's a good reason. And now we have a good reason. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Uh, your new book is called paper tigers and it's about, um, I should say this is something we were just talking about before we started. Is I didn't realize that it was historical fiction, which is maybe one of the reasons I couldn't find it in any of the local bookstores because I was just looking in the baseball section. But uh, it's about 
I think an an incident it's centered around an incident that I think a lot of people have a vague rec people that know their baseball history have a vague recollection of. But uh the book is sort of telling the story from the other side, as it were. And that's um the incident in uh nineteen twelve when Ty Cobb went into the stands in New York to attack a fan, which led to him being suspended, and then uh, his teammates went on strike, as it were, and the Tigers had to try and cobble together a team to play while the real players weren't playing, and the book is sort of looking at those guys who ended up being the other guys in that story. Yeah, that's a very good summary of where it came from. I actually first learned of this story when I was a teenager, so mostly occupied by professional wrestling at the time. But I, I guess I saw one of those sports fact-a-day calendars. So it must have been, you know, springtime, uh, you know, and talking about Ty Cobb climbing up in the stands. But what really captured my imagination was, as you said, the other aspect of it. The idea that Huey Jennings, uh, famous Hall of Famer, Tiger manager, had to go to the streets of Philadelphia two games later to field a team that turned out to be just basically college students and a couple of grifters and, you know, people that didn't have they weren't even on the college team. As a matter of fact, uh, he went to St. Joseph's College in, in Philadelphia, but the St. Joe's team was on the road or something. So he didn't even get their baseball players. He got sort of just college students and a, a famously a seminary student who became the pitcher and then a couple of grifters, one of whom went on to be part of the, the Black Sox scandal and, and help fix the World Series a few years later. So it was just a fascinating story. And, and the more I researched it, the more fascinated I became with this idea of these, as it turned out, there were eight Ringers, and then uh, Huey Jennings and two of his coaches also played at various times. So, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 people playing against the then world champion Philadelphia A's. And it's a, it's a little bit like the Seabiscuit or something like that story in that it's not about the result. You know, I think a lot of people initially heard, oh, well, they lost to the A's, spoiler alert, uh, 24 to 2. And, you know, what was the big deal? And actually, when I started researching it, I could find very little on the players themselves. The pitcher, uh, Father Al Travers, has a bio because he was a Catholic priest and he became known as the baseball playing priest because of this game. But almost everybody else, it was just a, a paragraph if I could find their obituary. And it might not have even mentioned that they were on the Paper Tigers. And then the stories of the day, like I could find the box score, which really helped. But you could find almost nothing about the Paper Tiger players themselves, except that the newspapers really dismissed them as losers and flukes. And, you know, they just didn't give them any credit. They didn't give them any sympathy. It's really very interesting from a I was a journalism major and I've been the editor of several different papers over the last decade. So it was interesting to see sports writing 100 years ago, 110 years ago now not very good journalism. You know, it was a lot of those sort of tombstone headlines and a lot of sensationalism. And, you know, they just out and out called the Paper Tiger players losers and, you know, Huey's folly. And it was just very sensational. It was like reading the New York Post of today or something. It, you didn't really look at it as factual 
completely, and you definitely looked at it as slanted or biased. So the reason it became historic fiction rather than, say, you know, just a research paper or a book, you know, looking at the nonfiction aspects of it was that there were so many gaps that I sort of had to fill in for myself. And, you know, as a writer of various types, both nonfiction and fiction, I do see them on the same sort of, you know, wavelength, just different parts of the spectrum. And research is a big part of what I do no matter what. So it just lent itself to being a novel rather than being a piece of nonfiction. And it's funny because certainly if you look at the most famous person in this story, it's Ty Cobb, obviously. Mm -hmm. And that's somebody whose life has often been over-sensationalized, blown up. You know, you look at when the movie came out and people sort of revisited the Al Stump book, and it's like, was Cobb really as bad as people thought he was? Was he bad, but not necessarily in the way people thought he was? Yeah. So that's sort of interesting that he's part of this, where it's somebody who also has this weird fact versus legend history to him. Yeah, so I've read a lot of the Ty Cobb books, and I just got a new one. And, you know, I don't know – I haven't read it yet, so I'm I'm wondering if I'm going to go into it, if it's going to change my opinion again. You know, I've read the ones that are, quote-unquote, the bad ones. I've read the the more recent one that was, you know, seeking to set the record straight. And I took a little bit of Ty Cobb, I think, from both sources, but I definitely had in the back of my mind that two things that stood out. One, young Ty Cobb is what you might think of as a cocky athlete, but he's not, you know, kind of the drinker, the drunk, the recluse, the angry old man that he gets portrayed as in later days. And I, so I don't even know if that portrayal is true or not. But I know that Ty Cobb in 1912 wasn't drinking. He wasn't drinking coffee. He wasn't chewing gum. I mean, anything that he thought would affect his eyesight, which is what he thought was the key to his hitting, he swore off of. Now, he could be ornery. He could get in a fight at a drop of a hat. But a lot of times, and you can understand this from wrestling and, and you know, from being a sports fan, a lot of times he was provoked. And in the incident that started the Paper Tigers, he literally was called the N-word by a fan in the New York City bleachers, what they called the Cranks at the time. And the Cranks were basically the most vile, filthy, you know, sort of drunkards and, and you know, people looking to provoke fights that, um, you know, showed up at baseball games. And some places had security and some places had no security and some places had a little, you know, way to keep the fans away from the players. And some places had none of this. And that was a big part of why Ty Cobb's teammates ultimately supported him. It was pretty well known that they didn't like him as a human being. And some of it was just prejudice. I mean, they were mostly Northern Catholics and he was a Southern Baptist. And actually, as weird as it sounds, using the N-word about Southerners was a Northern prejudice, you know. So, you know, to call somebody from the South, in this case, a half N-word, was a typical kind of slur that a northerner might use to a southerner just you know sort of you know implying that somebody was from a mixed race you know relationship or somebody had you know slave blood or whatever offensive thing you could throw out there 
that was pretty common in places like New York and Boston for Southern players. Well, yeah, I mean, you sort of look at it through modern eyes that, you know, we've certainly seen, you know, Vernon Maxwell, the Max, the Malice at the Palace, that, you know, while you don't necessarily condone players going into the stands after fans, you know, the the bad hecklers, you know, could be really vile at times, and... Yeah, it's it's that I don't condone it, but I understand it kind of thing. And yeah, well, fan fan is short for fanatic, right? I mean, it's there's definitely now we talk about fans versus stands, right? So there's definitely that, you know, we see it in wrestling all the time, right? There are people that are AEW fans and there are people that are WWE fans that are perfectly rational, but then there's just that extra class of people where if you criticize the WWE or Vince McMahon. Somebody will attack you on Twitter that just that's all they've grown up with and that's all they know. And they think that Vince McMahon can do no wrong or vice versa. You know, I mean, you know, you get the Dave Meltzer's of the world that don't allow any criticism of the AEW, you know, who must insult your intelligence on Twitter if you don't like a, a match that one of his favorites likes, you know, and so on and so forth. And And so, yeah, there was definitely this idea that, you know, for a while there was a little bit of a whitewashing of the fan. But then it came out that he really was probably a vile person himself. He was a drunk. He was an instigator. He was looking to provoke Ty Cobb. He had been picking at Ty Cobb for several days because this was the last game of a series. And then they were moving on to Philadelphia. And, you know, for whatever reason, he caught Ty Cobb on the wrong day, said the wrong word. Ty Cobb, you know, turned around and just, you know, leapt into the stands and really almost killed the guy. And again, as you said, you can't condone that, but you do have a little bit of a glimpse of why he did it, for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, you grew up in the in D.C. area, and, you know, I'm vaguely close to that. And so, you know, we grew up with Robin Fricker, who was like, you know, a professional heckler in D.C. and became famous for it. Although right. he generally, I think, stayed on the right side of... He was abusive without being uh, offensive, I guess. <laughs> because if I remember right, he was a lawyer, so he probably knew what he couldn't say and what he could say. But, right. You know, it's you know, it's just that yeah, it's that kind of thing where, you know, we. I mean, it's, yeah, like you said, like today's culture is so polarized about just about anything, and fans know and players know that the easiest way to disrupt the somebody you're playing against is to needle them and it just depends on you know where your line is you know famously you know in hockey it certainly used to be that you know the genesis of lots of fights were guys needling each other and you know players would say the worst things imaginable to other players to try and get under their skin right on purpose yeah so you know fans often say you know we i've heard uh, English soccer fans, you know, defend racist behavior by saying, oh, it's just banter, or I'm just trying to unnerve this guy who's playing It's my team. And some people, you know, think there's no line. And some people, you know, can do it good-naturedly or, you know, try and be clever. Again, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're going to talk about wrestling later. But, you know, you certainly know that there are funny 
smart fans who know what to you know who knew what to chant at guys or yell at guys to get under their skin versus right. you know just booing heels or you know throwing wadded up paper cups at them the the thing that i uh i guess i was i was going to ask you about the book is the main characters uh in the book are um Ed Irvin uh Billy Graham or i don't know, i don't know how you would how you would say the his his pseudonym Mahard okay Billy Mahard which, which is Graham, Graham backwards. backwards yeah, yeah. and and his sister and Ed Ed's wife, who ran a local bar near the stadium. So, how much of their story were you able to actually uh, find out about, and how much of it is just sort of uh, dramatic fiction? Yeah, it's about half and half. the The stuff about Billy Maharg slash Graham and the white so- uh, the Black Sox scandal is absolutely true. So that was fascinating to me. He was a grifter. He definitely had a partner that was a grifter. It may or may not have been uh, Eddie Irwin slash Eddie Irvin. Um, but Eddie did have a wife named Ray, and he did die and leave her as a widow to tell this story, you know, posthumously after his life. So there's a there is a little marriage of a couple of things in there. But it was just fascinating to me that the one guy who was good enough to actually play ball never plays ball again and then dies uh, tragically. So it really gave the story a different dimension in terms of, and I'll, I'll put this into Hollywood terms. I was selling this as a script or pitching it as a script for years and years, and it's still my goal to make it as a movie. I'd like to play Huey Jennings, although when I first read the script, it was so long ago that I thought maybe I would play one of the grifters. So that, that's, what, 15 years or so in terms of uh, ages of the characters. But the thing that I thought was so interesting about it, you know, was this idea of this one guy who was good enough to play, the widow that he left behind. And then, you know, a baseball film in Hollywood is very hard to make for certain reasons. There is sort of that mindset in Hollywood that you can't make a baseball film. And then it gets disproven every five or ten years, like with Moneyball. But Moneyball got sold not as a baseball film. It got sold as a dad and his daughters type of film. And so, you know, when people were listening to the pitch for the Paper Tigers as this group of ringers who for one day get to be pros, they were like, well, you know, it's a baseball film. We can't sell that. So I started to look at other aspects of it. And I just started to look at this sort of tragic romance and this idea of this guy who was good enough to be a professional baseball player among the ringers, but then didn't get the chance to play. And then this aspect of the Catholic priest who is the pitcher and gets kind of shelled by the world champion A's, but goes on to find his faith. And, you know, I thought um, I'm not Catholic, but I married into a Catholic family. And, you know, how many times in this day and age do you see a positive Catholic role model who's a priest on TV or in the movie. So there was just all these little aspects of the story that I thought were more sellable than say, hey, it's a baseball story where the good guys, you know, get blown out in the game. And uh, I actually wrote it as a script first. Then, you know, because of the troubles that I had selling it as a script, I ended up converting it to a book. And then the book was so much better in a way because people kept asking me whose story it was. And when I wrote the book, it became clear that it was Ray, Eddie's wife, and her story and sort of this tragic romance 
as opposed to just this story about these famous baseball players. So instead of being about Ty Cobb and Huey Jennings and the Tigers and Connie Mack and the A's, it's all filtered through Ray's eyes. And, uh, you know, so that really appealed to me and it sort of gave the script a different life, a different feel. And like I said, it was it was about half and half real research and then just filling in the gaps because so much of it was unknown. And, you know, maybe there's family, although in Ray and Eddie's case, they didn't have kids. But in some of the players' cases, I'm sure that there are now descendants. Obviously, Father Al doesn't have any descendants, but, you know, there is a bio with the Catholic Church and things like that. So, you know, some of it was known and some of it was just seemingly unknowable when I was writing this 15 years ago or when I started to research it 15 years ago. I was going to say, you could definitely see it sort of being more marketable as a film if the if it has if with the female protagonist because you know you get i don't know how old she is would be when this takes place but i assume probably like late 20s early 30s something like that so you know that's the kind of thing that certainly still in hollywood that you know slightly older actresses would look at as a good part to get because there aren't that many of them so, you know, you know, you have this as sort of a Bull Durham kind of thing where you have baseball to sell it to one demographic and you have the romance to sell it as the other demographic. And that certainly makes it more marketable than if this was just sort of, you know, eight, ma eight men out, for example. Yeah. And actually, the funny thing is my uh, cousin, my dad's cousin, my first cousin once removed, I guess. Um, was one of the producers of Eight Men Out. And he was always one of those people that was saying to me, well, you can't make a baseball movie in this town. You know, you got to think of something else. So, yeah, it's it's a very different story than it originally I thought it might be because, you know, it is sort of looking for those hooks. I think Ray's probably 25 to 30. I mean, when I started researching it, it was like Reese Witherspoon, but obviously she's now aged out of that role. Um a little too young probably today, but we did just send a query to Sydney Sweeney. So that kind of gives you the idea of, of the look and sort of the idea of, of what kind of star we would be looking for to play this role. Cool. Um, we've mentioned it a couple of times in your other book that, you know, we first met over is you wrote a book about the junkyard dog and his sort of cultural importance to New Orleans when he was in Mid-South. So, yeah. Uh, why don't we talk about like how you got the idea for the, you know again this is sort of you know people can still get it, but uh, talk about like how you ended up doing that book when you did. Sure. So when I was growing up, as you know, I was a huge wrestling fan. Grew up in the just outside the D.C. suburbs, and at first all we got was WWF, and that was fine. It was you know I was. 11, 12 years old when I got into wrestling. All the kids at the bus stop talked about it. So I just had to check it out. And actually, the first thing I saw was Ray Stevens pile driving Jimmy Snuka on the concrete. And, you know, whatever it says about me, I was hooked. <laughs> you know, the blood and the guts and the gore. And will Jimmy Snuka come back and get revenge? And why was his former partner turning on him? And, you know, it just it was like the male soap opera, right? I had to tune in next week to see what was going on. But my dad lived in Houston when I was growing up. And so by spring break of 83, I was watching Houston Wrestling, which was really two things in one. It's the hour-long Mid-South program with either a half hour or a half hour 
with either a half hour or an hour, depending if it was Saturday night or Sunday, of wraparounds and interviews from Paul Bosch's Houston Wrestling at the Sam Houston Coliseum, which I think at the time was every three weeks. And so it was obviously like nothing I had grown up with, you know, in the six months that I had been watching wrestling. And it was just so much more exciting to me. And it's not that I never watched WWF or WWE again. I mean, at various times I was pro or anti them, you know, really depending on what was going on in WCW at the time. But I did gradually become more of a fan of the Southern wrestling than I was of the six squash matches you know, format on WWF TV. And, you know, if you were lucky, you got a main event that was like Iron Mike Sharp versus Tito Santana or SD Jones when you knew he was going to lose against whoever the, the top heel of the day was. You know, almost immediately watching Mid-South and watching Houston wrestling, it was just so much more exciting to me. So that became my love in wrestling. And, you know, long story short, after college, I had trained to be a professional wrestler with Adrian Street, and I wrestled for five years, and then I moved to New York City and got out of wrestling and got into acting, and then I had been a journalism major, worked at some newspapers in Alabama, but I got really burnt out on it and burnt out on creative writing, and it took me sort of letting go of everything and getting into acting to really revive my interest in writing. That's not even the long story part of it. From there, we went to L.A., we were in L.A. when everything went wrong for the business in L.A. Um, I had just my wife and I had just uh, gotten married and our son was born. And so I was trying to support us in L.A. while there was literally no business. The writers went on strike and then the economy fell off a cliff. So she was from New Orleans and we ended up kind of becoming economic refugees, moving to New Orleans and staying with her family for a while. And it was very good in some ways for acting and very good in some ways to get to know her family and get to know her. And, but at the same time, it was in the back of my mind that we were in this city with all this history about the junkyard dog and Michael Hayes and the Superdome and, you know, the dog collar steel cage match. And what I had grown up with, I wasn't even a junkyard dog fan because by 13 or 14, I was, very much one of those, you know, cheer for the heels mostly type of people. So I was a Butch Reed fan by the time I saw both JYD and Butch Reed. I had read about Butch Reed in Florida and read about him in Georgia. So he was there when I got to start watching Mid-South. And of course, he immediately turned on Junkyard Dog and I kind of turned with him. So I, it wasn't that I was a huge Junkyard Dog fan, but flash forward to 2009, 2010, we're living in New Orleans and we were driving by the Superdome one day, and I'm so silly. I'm saying this to my wife, who's a West Bank girl. If you know, you know. And I said, honey, look, there's the Superdome. And she's like, yeah, I know that's the Superdome. You know, I grew up here. And actually, we went to a Auburn Bowl game there, you know, two or three years ago, if you remember. Like, yeah, no, I know that you know that that's the Superdome. That wasn't my point. I just, you know, that's where, like, Mid-South Wrestling took place, and I grew up watching it and hearing about all these famous matches and Junkyard Dog and Michael Hayes and the dog collar match and the blinding. And, you know, she gave me a Simpsons line, which was like, I know all those words, but that sentence makes absolutely no sense to me. And so I started to, you know, kind of explain Mid-South Wrestling to her, and she's – a little bit younger than me, so she wouldn't have grown up with Mid-South Wrestling necessarily, and she's into dance and ballet and theater, so she had no interest in professional wrestling, so she just had no idea, and, you know, I just 
you've never heard of the junkyard dog? No. You've never heard of Mid-South Wrestling? No. And I just was kind of looking around New Orleans, like, was there any indication that this history existed? And there wasn't at the time. And, you know, to some extent, there still isn't. But I just got really interested in this idea of, you know, talking to people about this history and finding out how much Junkyard Dog really meant to people in New Orleans. And, you know, there was at one point I was interviewing for a newspaper job. And I think I was saying to myself, if I get this job, I can write a column about Mid-South Wrestling or ask people their memories or something like that. And then it turned out I didn't get the job. And I was really disappointed, not because of the money that I needed or not because of the work that we needed or anything like that. I was disappointed because I wasn't going to get to talk to people in New Orleans about their experience with the Junkyard Dog. And I literally sat up in bed one night after everybody had gone to sleep with the idea that, you know what, I don't need to be at a newspaper. I could just go to the streets of New Orleans and talk to people about the Junkyard Dog. And, you know, that led to, I guess, about a two-year process of researching and writing chapters and ECW Press was interested right away, but they didn't buy it for about a year. So I just kept writing more chapters and more chapters. And, you know, it was a little before, like, in some ways, I wish I could do a second draft or a second edition, because there's so much more that's known 15 years later or 10 years later, you know, with without gets and charting the territories and, you know, Ron Fuller talking about Junkyard Dogs start in Tennessee and, you know, at the time, I didn't have a contract, so I really didn't want to talk to anybody that had a WWE contract for fear that, you know, they would blow me out of the water and then I wouldn't even get to, you know, get some royalties or whatever. So I didn't talk to DiBiase or Michael Hayes. The family had just signed a deal with the WWE. So I did talk to a bunch of friends back in North Carolina, but, you know, unfortunately, I didn't reach out to his daughter, Sylvester Ritter's daughter, and then she tragically died a few years later. So, you know, there's some good and bad about researching the book but I just the more I researched it the more fascinated I became especially with the angle of the idea that in 1979 in you know New Orleans in Mississippi and Louisiana you know the deep deep south that somebody like Bill Watts could have this idea of making a black wrestler the star of a territory and I knew about Bobo Brazil and Sailor Art Thomas and I didn't know about Bearcat Wright or Bearcat Brown at the time, but I knew that there had been headlining wrestlers who were black, but I really was caught up in this idea that somebody had literally made the decision to make him the star of the show and how and why. And it was just so fascinating to me. And actually, when I went to Wadesboro, North Carolina, where Junkyard Dog grew up, I spoke to one of his football coaches and his name was Coach Ed Emery. He was the JV coach at the time, and he integrated the big high school in town in Wadesboro. And actually, in retrospect, I don't think I put this in the book, but he reminded me so much of Bill Watts because he was like this libertarian in this world of conservatives. And maybe Bill Watts isn't that anymore. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not interested in his politics today. But, you know, Coach Emery didn't care if you were black or white. He just wanted to win football games. So he integrated the high school. I think it was Bowman High School in Wadesboro, North Carolina, because he thought if he brought in, you know, the black kids from the black school and merged them with the white kids at the white school, 
he would have a better football team than anybody else in town. And he endured the Klan. His wife almost left him. Ultimately, they left and went. I think he took a job at Wake Forest or maybe he took a job at, at East Carolina. He came from East Carolina. I think he went to Wake Forest. But ultimately, they did leave because they were getting death threats. His wife said, you're going to get us blown up. And I'm, I'm taking my babies and I'm going back to, to Greensboro or Greenville, whichever it was. So it was a fascinating story. And I can remember being in, at Emery's house and he still had, this was 2010, 2011. He still had his Ross Perot button prominently displayed. And, you know, in retrospect, he just reminded me a lot of Bill Watts, who, you know, whatever you think good or bad about Bill Watts, he just thought the way to go was to have a black headlining star because, you know, he lived in states that were 30, 40 percent black and he had a huge fan base that was black. And he knew if he didn't give them a black star, he was exposing his business because, you know, LSU, you know, their running back was black or their star defender was black or their wide receiver was black. So if a fan was looking at wrestling and none of the athletes were black, none of the top stars were black, Watts thought it was exposing his business. So he felt like he both to sell tickets and to make wrestling look realistic, which was, you know, kayfabe of the era, right, that he had to have some sort of black star. And at first it was Ray Candy, but he didn't really believe in Ray Candy. That was an Ernie Ladd thing. And uh, so they found Sylvester Ritter and they sort of groomed him to be this star. And obviously, as you know, it for four or five years, it really, really worked. And then, you know, for a couple of years after that, he was a big star in the WWF. And then, sadly, the cocaine and the weight loss took its toll. And, you know, by the 1990s, he was sort of a shell of himself and then, you know, died tragically in a car accident a few years later. I actually met him a couple times. He was in one of the worst matches I've ever seen for Austin Idol's ill-fated promotion, which I think lasted about eight weeks in southern Alabama. Um, and he, Junkyard Dog was on top wrestling the Iron Sheik in a match that was, like I said, one of the worst matches I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, so he fell a long way. But one of the things that I was struck by is he always still seemed to have a smile on his face. And he was very nice to me. He was very nice to the green boys that were around me and, you know, him at the time. Um, so I think he was a very nice guy till the end. And, you know, people that I, mutual friends, Bo James and people like that say he was just a sweetheart of a person. Um, you know, despite his troubles. So it was a fascinating story to me. And I was just hoping to sort of revive his legacy a little bit. You know, I'd still like to get a statue put up in New Orleans or get him into some of the Hall of Fames. It really does bother me that he's not in the Observer Hall of Fame. And, you know, people don't want to listen to me about that. That's fine. But, you know, at, at first, when I visited Wadesboro, the grave wasn't even marked. And now there's a gravestone. And there's some more recognition. We tried for a couple of years to get him into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame. They weren't necessarily interested in a wrestler. You know, Ernie Ladd is in there, but because of his football. And, you know, same thing in North Carolina. Like, Curly Neal is in the Hall of Fame. So you thought, okay, if a Harlem Globetrotter could be in the Sports Hall of Fame, maybe a professional wrestler could be. But apparently Curly Neal was also a, a high school legend in basketball. So we tried, you know, to point out some of Junkyard Dog's high school accomplishments. You know, he was all state as a lineman and he did go to Fayetteville where he was team captain. And I think he was all I think it was NAIA 
it might have been a different um, you know configuration, but he was a very good football player, and he was in in this is surprising, but in high school he was a very good wrestler. So he did have a little bit of an amateur background, even though, you know, quote unquote, he wasn't a good worker. But, you know, it just wasn't we just weren't able to document enough about him in high school and college to prove that he was, you know, a curly Neal level high school phenom or amateur phenom. So, you know, on some level, 10 years later, I feel like maybe we haven't done everything or I didn't do everything that I had set out to do. But on the other hand. You know, lots of people have reached out to me, people like you and Al Getz. And, you know, I have friends all over the South now just because of our mutual love for Mid-South wrestling. And, you know, they're mostly Facebook friends, of course. But every once in a while, you end up in the same town at the same time and you go have a beer. And, you know, there's not a lot of times that I just feel comfortable sitting down with, you know, strangers my age and talking about stuff from our, you know, childhood. But, you know, if somebody says Mid-South Wrestling, that's like the magic word. I don't care if you're, you know, a Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative or whether you're pro-Putin or, you know, like most of us, anti-Russia, anti-Putin right now. Like, if you want to talk to me about your memories of Mid-South Wrestling, I would sit down and break bread with you and, and we could talk for hours and hours and hours about nothing else, right? Um, as you know, we we probably have done that once or twice, at least on Twitter. So, yeah, it was just a fascinating story. And, and like I said, you know, as a writer, you know, I'm a journalist or I've been a journalist. Now I refer to myself as a recovering journalist. I've written plays. I've written screenplays. I've written two books that have been published, a bunch of things that have not been produced or published or staged yet. But to me, it's all sort of the same, you know, it's the same tree. It's the same roots. It's what is an interesting story? And then when you figure out what the story is, then you can figure out what the best way to tell the story is. Do you tell it fiction or nonfiction? Is it a play? Is it a screenplay? Is it a novel? Is it a little bit of all of them? So this was just a fascinating story to me. And, and you know, like anybody who looks at their work from 10 years ago, there's some things I'd like to change or a couple of things we got wrong or things like that. But um, you know, by and large, I, you know, I still will hear people compliment me on the book or, you know, I listen to like the annual, you know, Arcadian Vanguard Wrestling Hall of Fame edition and somebody will compliment the book and say, you know, they never would have considered the Junker Dog a Hall of Famer until they read the King of New Orleans. So, you know, I mean, those are kind of the compliments that you take to heart and you carry around for the bad days, right? You know, it's funny that you say that because, uh, in my Twitter, in my in my main Twitter bio, uh, it says non-practicing journalist and lapse historian. Since I since you know I have training in all of those things, but like my day job has nothing to do with you know what I learned. So it's like I so I appreciate you saying that. And uh, one of the things you know there are a couple things in that that I thought of is I wonder now. Uh, since I know Al uh, found that article, which you probably already knew about, about I didn't about yeah. about him helping to integrate his high school and being expelled or suspended, whichever it was, you know that's the kind of thing. Now I'm sure that if you went to somebody and said, "Yes, he did this. Yes, he did this," but you know he was, you know, uh, as a teenager, you know this sort of politically motivated, socially motivated guy, 
that's the kind of thing now that would probably carry more weight than it would have 10 years ago. Yeah, I definitely think so. It, it's, you know, if it happened in this day and age, obviously it'd be all over the internet and it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be this buried history. You know, we'd probably be on, you know, a cable news broadcast by, you know, 48 hours later or something like that. But yeah, I do find that very interesting that he was, and I didn't know about that article actually. And I, I went to the Wadesboro library and I pulled a bunch of stuff. Al is gracious enough to credit me with sparking his interest and, in, you know, giving him a little, you know, window to explore, to look for more stuff, you know, but when I went, I pulled specifically like the obit and, I looked for some high school football stuff. I ended up talking to some of the high school coaches that were there. And then I went to Fayetteville state and pulled some stuff, but I didn't see that necessarily that article. And uh, it is fascinating to see that he was such a big player in the civil rights era and in the integration of that school and in standing up for his fellow black students. And, you know, it's not, exactly who we think of him as later on in life because we focus on the tragedy and we focus on you know the drug use and things like that but he was definitely somebody who was a, a man of his times in terms of the 1960s 1970s integration civil rights era and he definitely even in wadesboro had the reputation of being a guy who looked out for the younger kids and, you know, I just thought that was really, you know, something that, that really impressed me about, you know, not the junkyard dog, but about Sylvester Ritter, the person. Yeah, one of the other things that you mentioned was, you know, Watts, you know, again, you know, it's sort of a cliche, but, you know, Watts's most important color was green. And so, you know, he pushed who he needed to push to make the most money and it's funny when you look at it you know this obviously isn't a new talking point but how many times he tried to replicate the junkyard dog success especially in new orleans the number of times you know there's at least five or six guys that he, right. that he tried to push as a main event babyface, including butch reed you know george wells um the snowman, Savannah Jack, you know, and obviously nobody had the charisma, I guess, that, or just because he was first, you know, or not necessarily yeah. first, but best, that you couldn't, that, yes, you're filling the, the quota slot, but, like, they didn't have, you know, you didn't have the connection. We haven't mentioned the Who Dat chat, chant, which may be, and ironically, you know, his lasting, his lasting um, historical relevance to New Orleans because that chant got picked up by the Saints, and they still use it to this day. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. I mean, to me, the trying to reproduce the junkyard dog phenomenon, of course you're going to try to do that. But as you know from being a wrestling fan, the next person in is always going to get looked at as a shallow imitation and it takes some time. And the, one of the best examples of that in mid South was the fantastics coming in right after the rock and roll express. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I've gone back and I think everything that's available I've watched in sequence now from, you know, that the end of 1981 all the way through when it becomes UWF 
And, you know, some of it I find very interesting because it's some of those wrestlers are not as bad as I thought they were, you know, back in the 1980s or looking back, laughing at them in the 1990s. George Wells wasn't a horrible worker. It's just that it was such a blatant imitation. And and I think they just knew, like, they tried so hard to make him a superhero and put him over everybody. And hey, Junkyard Dog never beat Butch Reed that quickly. And um, my take has always been they should have immediately turned Butch Reed. And that probably would have worked at least to some extent. And even when they do turn him, it, it was a huge thing. I mean, their last big house, essentially, at the Superdome was like 16,000 for Butch Reed and Ric Flair. And that was 1985. So that was like a full year later. George Wells wasn't awful, but he just was the wrong guy at the wrong time. And then, you know, the snowman was not a great wrestler. Obviously, it didn't work. There's actually two times where I think that they end up burying somebody as he's leaving town where it's just clear the guy would have been over if they had just gone with him to the moon. And, you know, the first time was uh, with the PYT Express and Coco Ware. And he's in this match. Clearly, they're leaving town. He's doing the job before they leave town. But it's with Hercules. And he's literally in the Shinonomaki getting put out. And the fans are still going crazy, rooting for Coco Ware as if he's going to be the next hero. And they're just stunned to silence that he loses to Hercules and the Shinonomaki. And it was like, you know what? You guys missed an opportunity there. Now, they might not have gone that quickly with Coco, you know, who was just a tag team guy who had previously been in, you know, with Lawler and done a job or whatever. But at least there was an indication that the fans would have been interested. And then same thing with Brickhouse Brown. I mean, Brickhouse Brown was already allowed to protege. He was getting over. He was really doing well. And then they just cut him off at the knees and they bring in Master G and go with, you know, him instead. And I think that if they had just not immediately, not to the moon, but if they had taken Coco or if they had taken Butch Reed or if they had taken Brickhouse Brown and just, you know, they didn't make Junkyard Dog the star immediately. It was like a six to nine month build and he started as a heel and then he turned on Gino Hernandez or vice versa. He had a feud with Gino. Then he was teaming with Robley and Watts and they were winning tag team belts and he was winning the Louisiana or Mississippi title. And then came the Freebird feud and then they elevated him to the top spot. And it just seems like Watts never really followed his own booking patterns after that. And I don't know if it was because Ernie Ladd was, or Buck Robley was booking at the time and just had a better idea of how to build it. But it seems like dog leaves and they panic and they just immediately tried to start shoving people down the fan's throat and it just didn't work. And, you know, even Savannah Jack, I, I, part of me doesn't like to watch UWF. Part of me wants to just say that Mid-South died that day. And I loved UWF in 1986 because we were getting it on home team sports in DC, right? So finally this wrestling that I grew up loving, but could only watch twice a year when I visited my dad in Houston, I was watching on cable, you know, in Rockville, Maryland. So at first I loved it, but now I kind of look back on it as like the death of my beloved mid South. But even Savannah Jack is not as bad as I thought he was at the time. It's just that he clearly was not the guy that could be the main event star of your territory. You know, and then we can look at, you know, Ron Simmons, 
you know, it wasn't Ron Simmons' fault. They didn't book him as a kick-ass babyface heel. They immediately tried to, like, I don't know. It was weird. They put him against Tony Atlas, or they put him against Cactus Jack, or they put him against the Barbarian. But it wasn't like they were putting him against Rick Rude or Jake Roberts or Vader. I mean, I know he beat Vader, but, you know, it didn't go back into the Vader feud. So I just feel like they kept making these mistakes that they didn't make with Junkyard Dog. You know, instead of trying to build somebody into the role, they kept trying to pop it and make it happen immediately. And then obviously, you know, trying to bring back Sylvester Ritter in 1990 and again in 1992, you know, that wasn't going to work. He, he just wasn't the same guy. He didn't have the same charisma. He looked, you know, what I always say to people, I didn't, I didn't say this in the book either. All, the, all my best observations didn't make it into the book for some reason. In 1982, Sylvester Ritter has a body as good as Tony Atlas. You know, he's as built, as stacked, as muscular, as jacked up. And by 1988, he has a body like Pistol Pez Watley. And, you know, that was part of his charisma. So as soon as the body goes, as soon as he doesn't look like a superhero anymore, he lost a lot of what was his effect. And obviously we see that as he tumbles down the card in the WWF. And we see that as Ole Anderson tries to bring him in as a, as a dude with attitude. And then, you know, again, when Bill Watts thought maybe he could bring him in and then, you know, met with him and realized that he couldn't, and, you know, the junkyard dog that I knew was like 1993, 1994 on the indie circuit. And he was a nice guy. And, you know, on a, on a small card in the middle of nowhere at a national guard armory, it meant a lot to still have him on the card, but you know, you couldn't bring him into a major federation by then. And, you know, I think, I think wrestling's gone a great way. I mean, you know this too. You know, now it's not about like the holy grail of the first black world champion and you can only have one black star in your federation and things like that. Now you can just have a Booker T who's a wrestler, you know, or I mean, Rocky Johnson was this back in the day too, where it wasn't about, you know, he was doing a black gimmick. You know, Rocky Johnson was, his gimmick was he was an athlete. I come in as an athlete, I leave as an athlete, right? You know, Booker T was just a really good worker. It wasn't, I mean, I know the Harlem Heat stuff, but that was distasteful. You know, that wasn't how he ended up getting over. He got over because he was a really good interview and he was a really good worker. And so now I think we're in a different era. And, you know, it's a better era, obviously, in some ways. It's, it's not the wrestling we grew up with, um, but it is, you know, a little different where you don't have to have this sort of just one black star, just one black baby face, you know, the crowd can't cheer for two <laughs> totally different scenario. But in Alabama, we used to talk about the Armstrongs that way, or I didn't, but people would tell you, you can't have more than two Armstrongs on the card. Otherwise it just kills the whole card. And I'm like, really? Because from where I'm sitting, the Armstrongs are the biggest stars in, in the state of Alabama. You know, they're the Von Ericks of Alabama. And anytime you put them on the card, they, you know, bring in fans and, sell you know hundreds of dollars worth of their own merchandise they literally had uh, their own merchandise people that followed them around selling merchandise for them basically as their job so yeah it, off topic way off topic now but um yeah it, and then the other stuff that you were talking about in terms of what were you saying about dog and and uh i was saying that his lasting legacy may be the hoodat chant oh okay well so yeah the hoodat chant has 
it, it's one of those legends that has many owners and nobody really knows the truth, but it's something that seemingly dates back to like minstrel shows and vaudeville and just sort of this, it became this catchy slogan, I guess, in the black community. And then it filtered its way into various athletic events. So there are foot, high school football teams that claim they invented the Houdat chant. And obviously we know it from the junkyard dog in the early eighties. I don't know if anybody else picked up on this, but there's a point in 1985 where the fans are doing the Houdat chant for Jake Roberts when he becomes a baby face. So, but I really do think that if you think about it as the Houdat chant started to happen in the Superdome for Junkyard Dog in 1980, 1981, and the Saints have really what is their first good season in 1982, and then it just, I can see where it, I, in my mind, logically, it makes sense that it spread, you know, in the Superdome from wrestling fans to football fans. Now, somebody else will tell the story in a different way and say that, you know, I forget the high schools now, Lusher High School or Deshere High School was playing in the Superdome in Thanksgiving in the state championship game. And that's how the Houdat chant got to the Superdome. But like I said, uh, um, there's there's just a you know dozens and dozens of stories about how that chant started. Um, but it certainly became popular for Junkyard Dog and uh you know, even in Cincinnati with the Who Day chant, you know, I, I think of it the same sort of way. Like, isn't this just really interesting how these things catch on? And then, you know, no one can say for sure what it was, but um, definitely part of his legacy for sure. Well, that's that's a lot of, you know, of the cultural appropriation of popular culture, especially, you know, if we're just talking about the United States where it's like you look at how many things sort of started – you know, either going all the way back to slavery or, you know, stuff in the 20th century, whether it's jazz and rock and roll, and it's like, you know, you can't necessarily pimp, you know, or rap, you know, and you take it up to rap in the 70s, you know, yes, we say Rapper's Delight is like the first big quote-unquote rap song, but obviously, you know, there, there was obviously stuff before that, and then, yeah, that's just, it's sort of like, first becomes when did the mainstream first notice it rather than you know because you know well what did you know what did robert johnson quote unquote invent you know or what did Mm -hmm. willie dixon quote unquote event it's just no they were the first person that like we can sort of especially you know with consumable uh artifacts you know it's like how far can you try how far can you trace something back officially before it becomes, oh, this is a folk song? Right. And then, you know, it's like, well, where do folk songs come from? It's like, you know, they're hundreds of years old. And it's like, you know, where did Kumbaya come from? You know, right. for, for example, or, you know, I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about, and it's funny because they're British, so it's even one step farther removed. But, you know, they were talking about, she'll be coming around the mountain. And it's like, the like seemingly dozens of different uh, quote unquote origins of that song, or what does this song actually mean? You know, is it about abolition? Is it just about sort of religion? You know, who knows? Yeah. And like yeah. all of those theories are probably equally valid because we don't really know the answer. 
the right. one the one thing that you brought up a couple minutes ago that I wanted to circle back to is we're talking about sort of repla- uh, filling that slot in in mid south is you mentioned Coco, and I think Coco probably was on the way to being that kind of when he was the Birdman before he left. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, this is sort of your. This is when it when it shifts from being mid south to UWF. Right. But you know, I remember you know when we first started getting mid. You know when it became UWF and we first got it here, probably on I guess either on a Baltimore station or a Philadelphia station for me. You know that Coco was super over. Whether it's because Coco was great, whether it's because of the of the time song. Or whatever, right. but he was certainly on his way to being. He was certainly like maybe their biggest upper mid card babyface. Right. You know whether or not he could sort of. Re- the problem is at that time you've kind of got that log jam at the top of the card on babyfaces because you've got not only do you have Duggan and Taylor, but you also now have DiBiase and Doc as babyfaces. Right. And it's like how many main event babyfaces can you really have? In a relatively small territory, so it's like, yeah, and Tabo Guerrero, yeah. So he would have been like a really good sort of TV level champion, probably. But I don't know if there would have been as good as he is. Whether there would have been room to elevate him up, and then you figured that's when Mantel comes in, and you've got the Booker change, and you never know how people what how people are going to react whether he likes a guy or doesn't like a guy, you know, and, and, you know, and you were talking about sort of the quota system in wrestling back then in the territory days where you could only have a certain number of black wrestlers in your promotion and they usually either team together or feuded against each other or both. Yeah. So, you You know, you know, so it's, you know, you know, Ken Mantell was probably going to bring in King Parsons he did, right? And, so, and King so Parsons. You, yeah, so you wonder, you know, where where would Coco, if Coco hadn't left already, it's right. like where would Coco have gone in the promotion if Mantell was going to push Iceman yeah. as his quote-unquote black baby face? You know, there's, right. at the time, there's no room for two. Well, and, you know, two things about that. One, um, Mike Mills always says that he thinks Iceman should have been the guy that they went with after Junkyard Dog left because he was over – he was already over in a neighboring territory, so like everybody in, in Louisiana, everybody in Houston was also getting Texas world class. So they already knew Iceman Parsons as a star. They, you didn't have to build him up. You just had to bring him in and then make him a, a champion in your territory. So that might have worked. But then, you know, Mantel and Coco and the UWF, one of the things I did notice as I went back to watch it is that UWF TV changes a little bit from the Mid-South that I was used to in that they are no longer, and I, this probably has to do with going national and not running the same places every couple of weeks or every week, but there's not as many feuds. Not everybody has a feud. Sometimes they just put people on, like Chavo is, seems to be there to be the Hispanic star, but they didn't really give him any anything to sink his teeth into. There was no Chavo feud. There was no Chavo angles. And same thing with Coco. Like, I can't think back and think, what was Coco doing? It was just Coco won a lot of squashes, right? I mean, if I can remember, maybe he beat Tars Bulba on TV, or maybe he beat Rob Rex Steiner before he was Rick Steiner. 
but I don't remember him in a feud. I don't remember him challenging for titles. The only things I remember from the UWF year, you know, being a Steve Williams fan, I remember the chase for, you know, for him to finally get the title. And I remember the Freebirds and Doc and DiBiase. And then later, you know, uh, then they shifted to One Man Gang and then Bubba Rogers, you know, and then the whole Freebirds versus Devastation thing later on. But I just don't, you know, it just didn't seem like it was the same booking philosophy. And as you point out, it, it wasn't because it was different bookers, right? To me, it is so abrupt in 1985 when you go from Bill Dundee to Dick Slater. It's like whiplash. It's like, you know, coming of age wrestling-wise in Alabama, it's like when Robert Fuller takes over a territory and he just literally immediately burns down everything the previous booker has done. And, uh, you know, in some cases on purpose to destroy the territory, apparently. You know, Dick Slater comes in and everything that's being built at the end of Bill Dundee's reign is just fodder to get Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer and the sheep herders over, you know, in a, in a heartbeat. Suddenly Al Perez is jobbing on TV. Suddenly the Bruce brothers are jobbing for the sheep herders, like just in a clean pin. Suddenly, you know, the Fantastics are jobbing. Like my question to the world is what did Dick Slater have against Tommy Rogers? Go back and watch like three weeks or two weeks in a row where Tommy Rogers just does clean pins for Buzz Sawyer and Dick Slater out of the blue. And it's like, why did they just kill the Fantastics dead? And honestly, I think I maybe I even said this to you. I don't understand how Bill Watts was able to bring the Fantastics back and have them get over as stars again in 1986. And maybe this is just the nature of wrestling where six months later people forget. But, you know, it was so abrupt the way that Dick Slater just killed off all the momentum. And then he didn't last long, right? Two or three months. And then he's gone, and I guess Eddie Gilbert takes over for a little while, or Terry Taylor had a cup of coffee as the booker. But, you know, then ultimately it goes to Mantell. And again, it's just so abrupt. Like, everything is different. All the world-class guys come in. And, you know, we're off topic a little bit. But to me, and Mike Mills has said this too, you can't just bring in everybody who was a star on the TV show on the other channel and then expect that you're going to do all the same booking angles all over again it was just too much. It wasn't an influx of new talent in a way, you know, because it was the talent that people were still seeing on TV, just on a different station. And sometimes that works. If it's one guy or two guys and you mix up the bookings, that's not what happened. It's like they brought in the whole crew. And they just kind of rolled over the bookings from Texas and it, it just didn't work. Yeah. The one thing I will say, I, like you, I was somebody who, and I was I had only started watching wrestling maybe like a year or so earlier, mm-hmm. but like I was already, you know, a magazine reader and all this stuff. So, you know, I loved when we finally got Mid South on TV here again. You know, we had Crockett and Vince, and we got to see world class. I've told this story on the pod before, but um, this is one thing we could thank Von Erichs for. Is they were since they were syndicated on uh, PTL stations th- that we got to watch World Class off TV from York from York. Mm. So we got uh, Crockett, Vince, World Class, and AWA slash Pro Wrestling USA. Right. 
So when we finally got mid south, this was like the you know the greatest thing to me, and you know that to me the the TV just starts off so great, and it was all the things that I still love about Watts as a booker or, or owner, however it was. I know, like to me the you know the first episode of UWF that we got to see was the one Watts hoodwinked Dick Slater and got him to sign the blank contract and screwed right. him. You know, and all this stuff was so new to me. It was brilliant. So it's ingrained in my head. But, you know, the one angle that you didn't mention, which I love so much that I named a website after it, was um, <laughs> was uh, was the Russian angle. Again, right. This is sort of, you know, timely as we speak. But, you know, to me that was, you know, in hindsight, that's to me, you know, like one of the five greatest angles, you know, in my memory, and you know, a lot of them are mid south, and a lot of them are uh, mid south alumni that are in them. But you know, the angle is just so great. That's the one that when I think of the UWF, like the first thing I think of is the Russian flag, right? And then you know, and then just much better wrestling. You know, Crockett had good wrestling on TV. But, you know, Watts is probably the first TV that we got to see that had main event matches on TV, probably. Because the other thing is, we got I got Crockett here where I am, but I live in the country, so we didn't have cable yet. So I only, I only saw Mid-Atlantic and Worldwide. I never I only saw the TBS show when I would go to a friend's house that lived in town at mm-hmm. cable. And even then, not all of them had cable or that were taping it, you know, because I'm only a teenager, so it's not like I'm trading tapes yet. Right, right. But, you know, I mean, I have that fondness, like you, of course, you were seeing it live when you got to go to Houston. But, you know, you know, I, you know, and then, like, I didn't get to see Memphis until I went to college. (laughs) Right. I was lucky to live in one of the three dorms in Bloomington that had cable. And it had F and N score, and that's when Jarrett made the deal to go on score. So like mm-hmm. that was the first time that I got to see Memphis. I had only you know seen a relatively few amount of things, but yeah, it's just to me. And and you were talking about them moving the TV when the UWF started. You know, that's another thing that you know that I started watching wrestling just at a time when you lost the studio show, and I've only like learn to go back and appreciate it because, you know, by the time, like, we watched W, I watched WWF first, and it was already taping in arenas. Crockett had just started, had just moved to doing the high school gyms in 85, and then, you know, like, I never got to see Mid-South Irish McNeil Boys Club stuff until years later when I started trading tapes. Right, right. And again, that's, that's amazing. That's, yeah, that's an, it's, it's amazing how different the feel is, you know, and now, you you know, and I had a project when I was for a while where I was, I was watching continental week by week when it changed. And it's funny to see the change. uh, And yes, they burned out Birmingham, but it's funny to see when it goes from the, the TV station in Dothan to being taped in Boutwall, what a difference. Even if everything else was exactly the same, because they, didn't like start anything new. They just suddenly went one week from being in TV to one week being in Batwall, and now here's Gordon. 
but it's, it was all yeah. the, but it was all the same angles and all the same people. But it's you know, funny. But you can tell yeah, the difference. To, to me, it's funny because like. From my memory, there's nothing better than the Irish McNeil Boys Club, right? No, I, 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 in hindsight, I agree. I wish, I wish I had. See, it's the thing where I started watching when I was 15 or 14. Like, I wish now that I had at least started watching, at least a year or two earlier, to see studio wrestling at the time. Like, I yeah. think, I think one of the reasons I have a different view on wrestling than a lot of my friends is I didn't start watching until I was a teenager. So I went, you know, I knew it was a work when I started watching it because I understood everything. So I right. have a different critical eye when I watch it, even now than the stuff that I watch as a teenager. Because yeah, you know, if I, if I had started watching when I was five or six or whatever, I'm sure I would have a totally different perspective on everything. But I didn't. Yeah. Well, from my perspective, it's interesting that to me, it's like those studio shows are quote-unquote, so much better. But if you're Ron Fuller, if you're Bill Watts, and, you know, WrestleMania has taken place, and you're competing with this guy who's coming in and stealing all your talent and acting like, you know, he's in New York, so he's got the best production values, and he's got he's affiliated with MTV and with NBC. So you can't have it at the Irish McNeil Boys Club, or you can't have it in one of those little studios where there's only crowds on three sides of the ring or where there's only a hundred people in the, you know, you have to have it in a big arena with the lights turned down a little bit and makes it look like it's this huge arena crowd. And it does, you know, 1986 UWF or, or continental, they do look better, you know, from a production standpoint, it does look better. Like it's more major league, but for those of us who grew up on the studio shows, it's also like a little come down. It's like, Oh, the wrestling that we loved is changing or, you know, I mean, I didn't think that at the time. I probably didn't even think about it. I mean, it, you know, it took me a couple of weeks just to know that, wait a minute, commissioner John Ayers for the UWF. Who is that? Right. Like, wait a minute, where's Bill Watts? Wait, something has happened. You know? So I didn't necessarily think of like, Oh, where's Boyd Pierce. Oh, where's the Irish McNeil. But now it's just, it's such a jolt. And I, it's very hard for me to like, yeah, I want to sit down and watch a year of UWF. Part of me just wants to go back to like 1982, you know, and, and start over. Um, you know, maybe maybe a little pause in that sort of dull area of 1983, uh, where it gets a little boring before Dundee comes in. But yeah, it's a, it's a very different thing. Um, and you know, most of us didn't know at the time. You know, we weren't observer readers or anything like that, so we didn't know how it was changing. But I guess somehow you just sensed it was. You know, I, I guess watching it a few years earlier than you we were watching you know at first it was all-star wrestling on channel 20 and then um you know challenger or challenge wrestling what was it all-star and championship wrestling on on channel 45 out of baltimore right and then we got those uhf stations channel 50 and channel 54 so very quickly in my wrestling watching we were getting southwest championship wrestling until the you know scott casey Bobby Jaggers, pig shit, you know, incident. And then suddenly we were getting Ole Anderson, Georgia, which, you know, I didn't know at the time was like not the Georgia of everybody's youth and, you know, not the great Georgia that everybody was remembering, but, you know, sort of a step down. And then that went off the air and we finally got Crockett, which was interesting to me because I kept reading in the magazines that they were in Richmond or they were in Northern Virginia, but we weren't getting it on TV for a while. 
But by the time I had seen Crockett, it was like guys who had already seen in Mid-South. So it was like, yeah, I've seen the Rock and Roll Express lose to Doc and DiBiase and Jake and Barbarian and, you know, so on and so forth. They're not that great. I've seen Magnum TA. He's, he's not the world killer they're making him out to be. I remember when Ernie Ladd choked him out with a chain. So it was a little different for me when I finally got Crockett. And, you know, then later on we got some Florida. Turns out it wasn't, you know, the heyday of Florida and so on and so forth. That seems to be what we got in our market. Yeah, we got AWA. I just found it very boring. To this day, I'm stunned that there's a TV show about Glow because I just thought Glow was like, it wasn't even like wrestling. It was like choreographed, you know, pretend wrestling, right? With with these really outlandish characters. And I, I don't understand. People are like, oh my God, have you seen the TV show Glow? It was so revolutionary. And I'm like, no, I lived through the TV show Glow. Yeah. It was not revolutionary. <laughs> and then, um, do you remember California Championship Wrestling? We got that for a couple of months, and that was the worst wrestling I've ever seen, um, you know, bar none um, in terms of, uh, you know, the announcers and, and who the wrestlers were and who they were main eventing and things like that. And then, yeah, we got big Pacific Polynesian wrestling was on the FNN network, and then maybe Continental was on for a little while. And then, you know, by 88, 89, everything was dying off, and it was like, Jeff Jarrett and Jerry Jarrett's renegade wrestling or whatever it was. And, you know, it just wasn't the same, obviously. We didn't quite know how at the time, but we certainly knew it was different. Yeah, it's funny that I ended up going to college in 1988 in Bloomington. So, like, I had no idea about the Bruiser or the Indianapolis <laughs> Territory because there was no sign of it by the time I got there. And... You know, I've asked, I've asked people, in, like years later, like I asked Cornette, I was like, was was like, did they ever run Bloomington? Was that like a thing for the Bruiser? And he's like, no, not really. And so it's it's funny that that I'm, I'm well, again, you know, knowing the way the Bruiser ran the territory, I'm not surprised. But it's like, you know, by that time it was only Vince and WCW when I got there. It's like, it's like had I had I gone to college just a few years earlier and had a car, which, you know, I didn't have as a freshman, it's like, hey, we could have gone to Evansville every couple weeks to watch Memphis live, you know, but didn't know about, like, you know, when you're a college kid, Bloomington to Evansville is like three hours, so that's like, I might as well be driving all the way home. Right. And then, you know, going somewhere that's not the fraternity house to drink on a Friday or Saturday night doesn't necessarily enter your mind. I was the same way with Continental. You know, I went to Auburn. Auburn's in East Central Alabama. So I think about it now. It's actually just about 30 minutes from Columbus. So it may have just as well been a Georgia town as opposed to a certainly it was not a Gulf Coast or southeastern town. Um, and I don't know about Continental, but we didn't have it on TV. I knew that there was a Montgomery Channel. Turns out it was owned by David Woods that still ran old tapes at like five in the morning or something right after the national anthem because he owned the tapes. Right. So when I moved to Montgomery, I ended up taping the whole cycle of those things. And, you know, um, three or four years of Continental off of like an old, you know, rabbit ears antenna so i you know i can't dub them and give them to anybody or anything i probably if i watched them today i'd be like man my tv reception was horrible back then but yeah i didn't even think about it even though i mean from the time i was 14 15 all i really wanted to be was a professional wrestler 
when I was in college, I was not thinking about, hey, I should just go catch the wrestling on a on a Friday night. I was thinking, you know, hey, I should go over to the fraternity house and see if anyone will buy me alcohol or if there's any girls to hook up with, you know. Priorities change, right? <laughs> yeah, it's funny that, like, I kind of only saw some of, like, the, the quote-unquote, you know, renaissance of WCW in 1989 because it just wasn't, at the time, it wasn't my thing. You know, it was like I was, you know, a freshman or sophomore or whatever, and I had other interests. You know, it wasn't until, you know, like a year or two later when I started getting the National and, you know, found Dave's column and then found the Observer and then, you know, started tape trading and watching Japanese stuff that, like, my interest sort of got rediscovered. So it's... You know, it's just I was un- I had I had sort of gone to like an almost wrestling fertile area kind of, but just when it wasn't when I wasn't interested in it. Yeah, it's like had I know, you know again had it been a year or two earlier, I like Evan. You know, I probably would have seen Bruiser's TV on the Indianapolis station, whichever one it was on. Right. Maybe gone to Evansville. And it's like, you know, then later. It's like, you know, I'm in Bowling Green, so it's like there's nothing really in northwest Ohio then except, you know, I probably could have gone to Indies and seen Al Snow and Sabu, but, you know, what the deal. Like, the thing that probably would have really changed is if I had gone to get my Ph.D. like I planned to, I may have gone to Middle Tennessee State, which is in Murfreesboro. Mm -hmm. I probably would have been getting there – like right in the middle of Smoky Mountain, so you know that would have that may have been something different. Yeah, but, you know, because it's like I I had set up with Sandy Scott to come down and write an article for the newspaper about Smoky Mountain, but um, for me that would have entailed going from Bloomington, like all the way down to Pikeville, which I think is the northernmost point they ran. And now I'm trying. I'm now. I did end up going for a variety of reasons. But now I'm wondering, like, what would have like, 21 year old me by myself driving, like, going to Pikeville? What that would have, and being a smart fan, it's right, like, right? You know, I probably would have been killed out in the in the hills of tennis. You know, I'm sure now if I told the story to Bo, he would just laugh at me. But right. it's like, I can't imagine what. You know, how different that would have been versus, you know, years later. It's like now, it's like, you know, I worked for an indie in Baltimore for a while, like behind the scenes. Or, you know, like when I would go to the indies in the 90s or when I went to Chikar. You know, it was nothing for me to drive like three hours to see this show. But right. as a dumb 20-year-old, I was not going to drive three and a half hours each way by myself to see, you know, wrestling in some high school gym. Yeah. But well, just, that, I mean, you know, it's funny how things change over time. Oh, my gosh, yeah. By my senior year, I was uh, a buddy of mine from Baltimore, and I were doing a, a wrestling newsletter, and we would drive all over the place. We drove to Dallas to see Global at the Sportatorium. We went, you know, to all the different WCW, um, you know, Super um, uh, Starcade and, and things like that, and TV tapings, and, you know, we would just drive all over the place to do stuff, and somehow – you know, I, I think I went to Fire on the Mountain one year. Yeah, I mean, it just – and then, you know, wrestling in the business. Like, you would think nothing of driving 12 hours to get to a wrestling match to make 20 bucks. 
you know, and then drive back home and take you two days. But, you know, you get back on Monday and go to work and you'd be like, yeah, I lived this weekend. You know, I was working in a newspaper in central Alabama and I just hated the job. But, you know, Friday or Saturday night, if I could go hook up with my buddy and he would drive to the matches and try to get me some work, then, uh, you know, I just felt like, OK, well, I don't like my work work, but I love my, you know, play life. And, uh, you know, so I guess there's some sort of harmony there or whatever. Greg, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk today um, to do the plugs. It's like people can get Paper Tigers from Amazon or wherever you get your books. You can still get the JYD book. Uh, we actually did not manage to uh, – you're in Cooperstown, and yeah. we had talked before the show about talking about baseball in the Hall of Fame and what effect the strike or lockout may have on the Hall of Fame, and you were telling me that you know what it was like for Cooperstown during COVID and how that affected the Hall of Fame. But I guess we'll just save that for next time. Thanks again, Greg, for your time, and we'll talk to everybody next time. <laughs>